But that, that gnarly scene that we just saw sets a scene and, and it sets up the story of the next little bit. And I know it might seem like that was a lot of details. That was intense. Like if you jumped into this movie alone, it would be pretty epic, wouldn't it? It's like watching a Marvel movie. It all stands alone. Like you can watch it and be pretty impressed, but it's even more impressive when it fits in the setting of all the stories, which apparently tell one larger story. Still yet to be convinced on that, but I guess I haven't had the 400 hours to dedicate to the craft of watching every Marvel movie so far. But here's what I want us to see based on the chapter that we just saw. When it comes to talking about the law, when it comes to talking about God setting out the best possible way to live, uh, the first thing I want us to see is that the law is founded on grace. It's found in a story and it's for a people who are already redeemed. These points actually matter. Uh, when it comes to approaching God and what he says about how to live in the world, each one of these phrases matter. First, the law is founded on grace. Did you hear in this story, he said, you yourselves remember how I rescued you out of Egypt and I carried you out on eagle's wings. Like, like that was a gracious act of rescue by God. God didn't just say, hey, here's a bunch of junk you have to do but he rescued them out and showed them ridiculous amounts of grace. Remember, these are real men, women, and children who really felt the oppressor's whip, who really were struggling in a nation that they had to work 24-7, that they were the ones who were being oppressed and dying without any hope of rescue. Look like that these real human beings gathered together and God had just shown them ridiculous amounts of grace in rescuing them out of Egypt's power. And in some ways we look back and that's the story of Egypt and Israel. In some ways we can look back and that's our story with sin. Before God ever tells us what to do, he reveals himself. It's founded on grace. It's found in a story. We can't just drop these next verses out where God's gonna give the law as if they don't find themselves in the story that we've been learning for the last 10 weeks. That a good God created everything good, right, and beautiful. That human beings rebelled and brought sin into the world. And that he made a promise to set it right. And he was gonna call one people through whom he was gonna bless the nations. Like we can't take this next part out of that very important background. This law finds itself in a story. But then we also have to remember that the law that he's about to give went to a people who were already redeemed. They were already redeemed. Uh, the NFL has a combine. You guys know what that is, right? Where they have these different exercises that NFL players do, some of which are just outright ridiculous. Like how high can you jump? How many cars can you jump over, right? Like they jump incredible heights. And it seems like in, in the most recent times, like all the things that they do, like lay down and then sprint as fast as you can. And what they're doing is showing off their skills before they get drafted to say like, who should we draft based on their skill? And because if you can jump higher and you can run faster and you can push more weight, you're going to be a better player. That's not what God does with the law. He doesn't go, all right, if you can keep it all together and you can follow all my commands and you can do all these things that I've laid out for you with absolute perfection, the ones who do it best are the ones that I will call together as my people. And the rest of you get to go play in the XFL. Like it's, he's calling together people who are already redeemed. They're already his family. He's already brought them out of Egypt. And then he's giving them a law. That order matters so much. 
This is the way God always reveals himself. And and we have to hear this. If you're into grammar, it's always the indicative before the imperative. He always says what is true. If you're more simple like me, he always says what is true before what you're supposed to do. Look at any time in the Bible that God gives a command. Before that, he always identifies himself and his character, the basis for that command. Paul carries that on, even in his letters when you get to the New Testament. The first two chapters are usually, here's what's true. And then he makes a turn and says, therefore, live this way. God regularly always reveals himself and said, here's what's true. Now here's what you're supposed to do. Even in this story, some of the most famous commandments, he does the same exact thing. The next thing for us, That gratitude, not obligation, is the motivation for obedience. Gratitude, not obligation, is the motivation for obedience for these Israelites. And it's the same that's true for us. We don't obey so that we are accepted by God. As Tim Keller says, we are accepted and therefore we obey. The order of that really matters. Uh, If you were enslaved and somebody says, hey, remember that time I rescued you and you could never have saved yourself. You were oppressed, you were locked in, you were in those chains that we sang about before. You couldn't get out of them. And somebody came and broke those chains and set you free. You would be grateful to them. Like the overwhelming uh, emotion that came out of your heart would be one of gratitude. I cannot believe you did what I could never do for myself in making me one of yours. Like I could never have done that. that, that gratitude is what's meant to drive the obedience, not an obligation. God doesn't reveal himself in a way that says, remember I did that, therefore you owe me. He said, remember how good I am to rescue you and I set you free and now to live free. This is the way I want you to do that. An overflow of gratitude, not obligation as that motivation. And then I don't want us to miss the laws motivated by the mission of God. Remember again in the context that God has sent out Israel, that they were blessed in order to be a blessing to others. So this way to live is part of that as well. When he lines up for his people to live a certain way, it's not just because he's some drunk dad in the distance who's like, man, these are crazy things I'd love to make him do. It's because he says, in order to bring rescue and redemption to others, for the world to flourish, for others to experience my grace, this is how I want you to shape your shared lives together. And that will both bring me glory and bring you joy. We can't miss those pieces that they all fit together. And the last thing that I would just say on this is the intentions of the law still remain. So we're like, Platt, what are you talking about? Like I memorized a verse that said, Christ came to fulfill the law. Like we aren't under that. Like you eat bacon and I know you eat bacon. Like you love shrimp. I know you do. Like you met your clothing, you have polyester blends, you have mixed your fabrics, like you don't live under the law anymore. And while that is absolutely true that we don't live under the exact same law in the exact same way as Israel did, I don't want us to dismiss the fact that God's intentions still absolutely remain. Like, like what he was doing was finding ways for the people to remember him, to order their life around worship of him, for them to be able to be together in a way that the vulnerable in the community flourish. And so while our laws don't reflect theirs all the same, his intentions to protect the vulnerable absolutely do. His intentions that you love your neighbor absolutely do. His intentions that he is the one worthy of worship from everyone absolutely do. So imagine with me, uh, Caden, my son, loves Minecraft. Some of you might as well. I don't get it, but whatever. 
I know you guys were going to be in here, so the story involves Minecraft. This is me loving you. 100% of the kids just looked up. Um, so Minecraft is a game that goes on your any device. Uh, and the good thing is with my Apple device, it goes across all the advice. So imagine with me, imagine with me, Caden wants to learn how to play Minecraft a little bit better than he already does. Already a brilliant wizard at it. You're welcome. Um, and so since he's discipled in the life of a missio community, right? We have a missional community. He goes to the one who knows the most about Minecraft in our MC, Jay Shabika, who uh, if you have any question about Minecraft, he just whipped... He's got it down, right? So he goes over to Jay and he goes, Jay, how do I do this? And Jay sits down next to him and shows him the best possible way to play Minecraft. Like he tells him, here's what you need to do. Here's how you order your supplies. Here's the world you want to go to. Here's how you build both in creative mood and watch out for the enderminers. Is that right? Some of those things, I don't know. There's these little things that you watch out for. Uh, if it glitches on you, here's what you do. And he lays out for him all these ways to play the game, right? Here's the shortcuts. Here's the different things. And Caden's sitting next to him. He's nodding his head saying, yeah, 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 that makes total sense. I'm absolutely on board with that. Uh, Jay gets done and he goes over to eat his meal, which is usually what happens in our house. And then uh, Caden goes in the garage, pulls out a hammer and starts smacking the iPad. And because you guys are smart, you're like, what in the world are you doing? Didn't you just hear Jay showed you all the ways within this game under the controls, like you hit these buttons and these things happen. You build this world, you enjoy the game this way and the best possible way to play the game. And Caden goes, yeah, yeah, I know, but I just wanted to play it this way. One, Jay's not a jerk for telling Caden the best possible way to play the game uh, was not with a hammer, right? You don't use a real hammer when you play Minecraft, do you? And two, Caden actually, I mean, he can, but that's an awful way to play within the world of Minecraft, doing whatever you want to do with a real hammer. Jay's not mean. Jay's not trying to restrict Caden's fun. In fact, Jay is trying to show him the way to have the most fun with the game is to play it in the line with the way that the game is designed. In the same way, when God gives us his commands, he's not doing it to restrict your fun, to make it so you really can't enjoy it, to hold back from you the real joys of hitting a real screen with a real hammer. But what he's doing is showing us the best possible way to play in a world that he designed. So when God gives his commands to his people, it's so that they can flourish and enjoy what he's pieced together. Yes, you are free in a lot of ways to do whatever you wanna do with the commands of God. You can say, I know better than you. I struggle with fifth grade math, but I've got this universe thing down and I can run it. And you can do that. But all often when we do that, does it lead to a shattering effect in our life? And so I just want us to remember that like God's commands, like I said, aren't just a distant drunk dad that's trying to give you all these rules to do, but a loving father who is showing us the best possible way to live in a world that he created and he knows best. So Exodus 20, we're gonna get to this next verses. And these are uh, what have often been called the 10 commandments. And so your brain might already go towards them and be like, all right, cool. I know what this is. I see this. I want to introduce us, and I'm just going to walk through the verses and give a brief commentary on each. But instead of seeing them as these 10 laws that stand outside of time that you really should obey if you want to be a good citizen, maybe look at them within the narrative of what they are. These are a rule of life for the people of God that shape how to live as a flourishing people in the midst of a world that God created. Like if we follow these things, there's a brilliance and a beauty that comes with it. 
And when we go against them, it leads to fracturing and shattering in our lives. And God spoke these words. They hung out for the uh, Minecraft thing and then everybody peaced out. So that was amazing. Um, And God spoke these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, Remember this. He's saying it one more time loud for those that are in the back. Uh, Remember all that I've done. Remember the power I displayed. Remember the wounds I healed. Remember the generational slavery I rescued you out of. Remember the Red Sea. Remember the water I just gave you out of a rock. Remember that I never fail you and you can absolutely trust me. Remember that I've called you to be my covenant people. Remember you are called to show me off to the nations. Remember that you've been blessed to be a blessing to others. That's everything he just said in that verse in case we missed it the first time around. And then he goes on to say, you shall have no other gods before me. In light of everything that's been shared, this certainly seems fair. Uh, This is especially going to be in comparison to the Egyptian deities that they had just come out of. Uh, Martin Luther is credited with saying that you'll never break commandment two through 10 unless you've already broken the first one. Something else becomes central in our life And that's when we break all the others. And whatever we make the main thing in our life becomes our master. And when that's God, that's a really good thing. When it's our house, our career, our spouse, the pursuit of a degree, the pursuit of acceptance, the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of control, we'll be devastated and disappointed because that God cannot fail you. This is a loving call to say, have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself in an image of the form of anything in heaven or above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sin for their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations for those who love me and keep my commands. Uh, There is a serious weight to being the people of God. I hope as you hear those words, there's something about that like, hold up, wait a second. You're doing what to the what generation? I hear this, fam. We are the covenant people of God now. And the way that we live in light of our kids and raise them will affect them for generations. Hear this as well. If your parents, uh, if your great grandparents were alcoholics, your grandparents were alcoholics, your parents were an alcoholics, God can absolutely save you and not make you an alcoholic. Like you're not destined for that. But you can also hear this because I've been in this situation uh, that you will have to face different battles because of the decisions that generations past made. If your parents were consumeristic and they bought everything and they raised you to love stuff, you fight that in a different way than somebody raised in poverty who never had an opportunity to do that. How we live with our kids as the covenant community of God does really matter. The effects trickle down through generations and that's why God says wholeheartedly and loudly, follow me. Don't bow down to those other gods. It's not just you that's affected by that. It's the community you're a part of. Verse seven, you shall misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And I know when I said that, most of you heard, don't take the name of your Lord your God in vain. And what uh, Moses is not talking about here is whether or not you text OMG at the end of a thread. Uh, It might not be the best thing to do. It might not be the way that you're just taking God's name that way lightly, but that's not what he's getting at. Uh, What he's getting at here actually probably implicates us far much more than if we text OMG on a thread. What he's talking about is don't you dare claim to be my people and then live in a way as if I don't matter. 
Uh, don't you dare claim to be the people of God, right? Like you say, yep, he's my God. Yep, he's my God. And then you live your life in a way that that's not really true at all. You don't give in to his commands. You don't obey him. You don't love him. You don't serve him, but you just take the name for the benefits that come with it. That's what he's talking about. Don't, don't do that. I'm not gonna hold it guiltless if people that do that. And you can see how that affects a community. If we all take the name of Jesus and live however we want, it will negatively affect us, right? The next thing, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male nor your female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day to make it holy. Uh, this, is, this is so good. Knit into the fabric of these 10 different rules to life that God gave. Here's the best possible way. Sunk in there is the command not to work for a day. Now imagine this, right? You just came out of Egypt and they made you work all day, every day with limited supplies. And their gods demanded more and more of you so that you could build their temples. And then you show up at this mount and this God's now giving you, and you're watching the rumbling, you're seeing the thunder, you're seeing the fire, and you're like, this God is legit. He could make us do whatever he wants to. And tucked right in there in this command is the command, hey, remember to rest and spend time with me. And then not just you, but all your servants. So nobody's making money this day, right? So, so nobody's working. So if a foreigner happens to be in your town and it's on Sabbath, everything shuts down, you invite them into your house and you guys feed together, talk about the goodness of God. And then you get back to business the next day. Other people should be blessed because of the way that you rest. Now we don't follow the commandments again, all in the same exact way, but this one harkens back to creation. So it do us well to ask the question, how do we rest? How do we stop working? And are we allowing other people to do the same? It's something for us to wrestle through, come to different answers, but, but tucked in there is this command right at the center, stop, rest, worship, remember me. And then he's gonna pivot in verse 12. He's been talking about people's relationship to God. He's like, this is how you order your life with God. Now watch how you order it with other people. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you which that's, that's a really good thing, right? But again, this verse isn't just saying obey your parents. Uh, kids, should we obey our parents? Everybody's gonna be a jokester. Yes, we should. And there's verses for that and God has placed them in our lives. But parents, this is actually talking to you and the way that you relate to your parents now as they're older. Uh, in a culture that wants to dismiss the elderly, how do we give honor and respect and care for those who might not produce as much for society, but who are worthy of value because of who they are in God's image? Uh, and again, in a culture reminding that people's value isn't based on what they can do, but the fact that they're image bearers of God. The next command, you shall not murder. Be a community who values all of life for all people. Uh, Jesus even brought hate into this, right? He said, all right, you can not kill somebody, but if you hate them, you've broken the same command. He's saying, don't treat those who uh, are human beings as if they are not. Remember the image of God is stamped on every single human being. And so we don't eliminate life at our own whim. You shall not adultery. Yes, for sexual ethics matter. Uh, the way that we engage with other human beings matter because one God, again, has a design where he's lined up. This is the best possible way to live. Uh, this is not decisions made against you, 
This is decisions that you're making, right? So if you hear me saying this, you're like, I didn't have a choice. Things were done to me. He's not saying don't be that person that has things happen to you. He's telling the other person, don't live like that. I mean, this could be a whole separate thing, but how many wounds that carry through in adulthood were caused by people disordering their sexual affections when they were younger? And he's saying, don't be that kind of community because it brings pain and shattering to relationships. Our sexual integrity tells a story about God's faithfulness and has the power to cultivate flourishing or cripple the witness of a community of God. He goes on verse 15 says, you shall not steal. Don't take what isn't yours. Like this is a basic rule, but how good of a community is it be to where you can trust your stuff isn't gonna get stolen by someone else or your reputation isn't gonna be stolen by someone else. Verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Uh, we were talking about this in the house the other night and uh, lying is bad, right? You shouldn't lie. That's, that's a fair thing. Like, don't do that. Uh, what he's saying here harkens way more to a courtroom where he's saying, don't give false testimony against your neighbor. You have to be able to trust the system that you're working in. So don't lie against a neighbor in a courtroom. All these commands just went above that. We're all just, we're all ways that the, the poor or the marginalized could be taken advantage of. It was a lot easier to kill somebody and just wipe them off. They didn't have any power. It was a lot easier to steal from somebody who was poor and couldn't give voice. It was a lot easier to lie against somebody in court who didn't have any power. And he's ordering a community where everyone's given the same rights as the wealthy would be in most of the ancient Near East. And then the last you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And what God comes after at the very end is the attitude that would lead you to break any of the commandments above. He says that desire to have what isn't yours drives behaviors that break down communities, that destroy relationships between neighbors. What if we were a community where we live these out, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude, remembering the grace that God has poured down on us. Saying, how do we order our lives then in light of that? To be a community who loves God and loves people. It would be great as if in the near future, you took a little bit of time and just process through, what does this rule of life look like for us as we live together as a community? How would a community catch us? How would a community who lives in this way, yes, even hearkening back to Exodus 20, but how would a community who lived this way be good news in my neighborhood or be good news in my city? Or imagine, like actually imagine, what if the church in America was known for the things that were just described in Exodus 20, being people whose hearts were melted by grace, who loved God more than their political party or their preference, who loved uh, and set aside a day of rest instead of always demanding more of their employees and invited other people to rest with them and curated a world where people could actually stop and be present or where there wasn't stealing or they weren't worried about the pastor stealing their wife, which is all across American news, right? Or where they didn't have to worry about the scandals that fill up the news. And they're like, man, that's not in that church. They love this God and that changes everything. And they weren't people who were always critiquing each other because they were jealous. And so gossip wasn't riddled through that, the community. Imagine if God's grace actually formed that kind of people, how that would be a good news community. And that is what I think we walk away from this 10 commandments with, not a to-do list like check or not check, but what would it look like for us to be this kind of people? Hear this, uh, there's always been failure in following that. So if you feel like super heavy and weighted down, take a deep breath. There is 
failure and that is known. God sees that. He actually planned for it. It's the person of Jesus who came and did what we could never do in perfectly keeping the covenant and then extends that grace to us. This is the blood of the new covenant, a one where I'm writing not on tablets of stone, but on your heart. One where I'm bringing freedom, forgiveness, and my spirit to empower you to be this kind of people. The forgiving grace of Jesus washes over all those failures and gives us fresh starts. Do you guys bow your heads with me? As you uh, turn this corner, we've got one more song. But I want to invite you, if there was even one of those different points that struck home with you, that, that highlight an area where you're not living consistent with those who have been called to Jesus to be his people, there's always an invitation to repent, to turn from that, to turn back to the goodness of the gospel and the grace that motivates it. And to rejoice because Jesus himself meets you in this place. That when we say, God, I messed up, I'm sorry. He meets us in that space and pours grace, not condemnation. And then we're invited again to re-engage with the mission. We don't get through timeout sections. We're forgiven and released again. And hear that with hope. That no matter what the trajectory of your life has been, as somebody who consistently breaks what God sets out as this is the best possible way to live, that the resurrection reminds us that we are only uh, one, one moment away from newness breaking in. That the story of your past does not have to be the story of your future. Because Jesus welcomes us into a new and a better future when we turn to him in trust. Jesus, we pray to you as the only true king and ask you, ask you to continue to set up your reign in our hearts and in our midst. Yes, for us personally, as we follow you, would we be people who are quick to repent and to reorient back in the story and then rejoice at the salvation we find there. But would you also allow us as a community to continue to examine our hearts so that we can be people of peace in a city in a place of shattered lives, shattered hope, shattered dreams, because we believe that you are a savior who takes the broken pieces and holds it all together. Uh, would we trust you and not ourselves? Would we trust you and not our moral performance? Would we trust you and not look with regret in all of our failures? And Jesus, now as we come to the table, would we bring those pieces that are truest of us to the table and find that you meet us there? We ask this in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.